0: Hey there, and welcome to the Oxford Comment. My name is Ryan Curry, and I'm the Trade Marketing Manager in the New York office of Oxford University Press, and also your host for this episode, which is going to take a look at moral injury, PTSD, and what service men and women face after returning home from war. I spoke with Nancy Sherman, author of After War, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers, a book that Phil Clay, author of the 2014 National Book Award winning Redeployment, is calling urgently necessary. I started by having Nancy dig deep into the meaning of moral injury and just what exactly it is.
1: So, moral injury is, a, is an old idea that's getting uh, repurposed of late to catch a lot of the themes uh, of stress and trauma that, that soldiers bring home. Uh, PTSD really is a fear condition disorder uh, and, and you respond with hyper vigilance and flashbacks but moral injury is a broader term that characterizes uh, the anxieties of not really knowing if you fought the right war, if you did your best to save your buddies uh, when they in fact don't come home, if you did your best to avoid civilian killings in a collateral incident when in fact you may have killed someone and it may have in fact been legally permissible but nonetheless it was a child or, or a, a, a person you saw later to be unarmed all of that kind of quandary and qualm and some of it to do really with just war and just conduct and um, and the war afterwards that you leave behind in a, in a place that you've occupied, that all weighs on soldiers and it comes out in the form of guilt and shame and anger or resentment at the country that sends you and their mission and cause isn't so clear and it can be annihilating, suicidal, uh, get to that proportion or it can be small and leaving you with a lot of unanswered questions. That's moral injury, a much wider bucket of of anxiety than we think of typically with PTSD.
0: It's, it's definitely a fascinating topic, but it's also a very scary topic. What really drew you to the topic of moral injury, and, and why do you think it was so essential that you wanted to write a book on this topic?
1: Well, moral injury is about the things that moral philosophers worry about, and I am a moral philosopher. I worry specifically about the uh, the way moral philosophy affects individuals, kind of how you register the concerns of of um, justice and the concerns of your agency like uh, certain things you can't do in the world, but you think you should be able to. you think you should be able to always take care of your children, always take care of your troops, but sometimes luck and bad and bad uh, circumstances get in the way. And that you can think about it very, abstractly, and you can think about it theoretically, as philosophers tend to do, and at the same time, you can think about it concretely. What injuries or wounds does it leave on a soul? What scars does it leave where the scar tissue doesn't heal so well? And I got interested in this theoretically and concretely, um, but also because I was teaching veterans, uh, and I've worked with um, service members for 25 years or so, beginning at the Naval Academy. So it's... Not new territory to me, but the, the past wars, which are the longest in our history and amongst the ugliest because of the wars being so fought without a front line and in cities where it's hard to see who's a combatant and who's not and who's complicit and who isn't. All that comes home to you in a classroom. And so you see it up close and you see the hurt and feel the hurt. I have to say, in addition, I've been trained in, um, in research training and psychoanalysis, so I sometimes think about the psychological conditions uh, of um, of hurt and injury in a way that some of my colleagues don't necessarily.
0: So you've been describing PTSD in one sense in one light and moral injury in a, in a different light. What really is the difference between the two?
1: PTSD became a diagnosis in 1980 with the what's called diagnostic and statistic manual of disorders that's the bible for filing insurance claims that psychiatrists and mental health clinicians use uh, put out by the American psychiatric association and that bible you might say codified this condition which largely came home from vietnam but uh, it took, made a, it forced us to take it seriously but also psychiatrists who were seeing this in in the case of uh, women who were rape victims, that there were real external threats for your life, on your life, that you were in danger, and that the responses often were hypervigilance, this kind of sense of super arousal, uh, flashbacks where you get traumatic nightmares and you relive the terror, and also a kind of numbing. You just withdraw and go dead a bit psychologically dead, and. That came to be known as PTSD and it wasn't just malingering or cowardice or weakness of moral fiber. So the idea was there was really an external threat and these were the behavioral symptoms. But It's pretty codified and a bit of an artifice and used for diagnosis and it doesn't catch all the symptoms that come home from war, there's a lot more to anxiety and there's a lot more also where there isn't necessarily a threshold. Some people have a little bit of moral injury. They're just bothered a bit by stuff they can't figure out. Like, was their guilt for not bringing home one of their buddies? Is it justified? Or are they being too grandiose, too hard on themselves? It doesn't keep them awake too much at night, but it but it nags a lot. For others, they can be suicidal. They can just feel Absolutely overwhelmed that they're, they've lost their moral bearing. They, their sense of shame is devastating, and they so fell short of what they think military honor and being a good person requires, and it can lead to a deep, deep depression and despair, and as I said, ultimately suicide. That's a huge range of dimensions, and from a little to a lot, and. That I think is the flavor of moral injury. It's just it's not an artificial. It's not a category on um, in a manual yet that's diagnosable uh, in the same way. Clinicians are trying to be able to uh, diagnose it, and there is work right now in the updated di- DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders to include guilt and shame. Um, but we don't quite know how to treat it well, and some of the treatment for PTSD which involves kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, you relive and retell your story but in a way that desensitizes you to the threatening object. You don't see it as as threatening and is making you as helpless as it did before. That doesn't really work when you're feeling guilty or ashamed or, or terrible resentment. Relive your story over and over again and desensitize your fear. Well you're not afraid, it's just that you feel terrible about what happened and you don't think you're a good person. That's that requires a different kind of treatment, and so the artificial—it's not an artificial—but the narrow pegging of an injury that it has to meet this criteria and that criteria doesn't really capture what we're seeing coming home from war, or or not, or among civilians when you've had a really really uh, difficult uh, experience that could be. Uh, an assault, a battery, uh, a victim—you could be a victim of sexual um, of sexual assault or rape. Where you know, d- did I bring it on? Did I do something? Am I to blame? I—I I thought I could trust that person. That was my boyfriend. I can't trust that person anymore. The- those are all in the f- in the flavor of moral injury.
0: Well, it's it really is fascinating. I mean, coming back home and and re-entering into society can can be something that. Some may do very easily and some may not entirely. And and you've you've, uh, titled chapter two within the book, Don't Just Tell Me Thank You. So why is thank you for your service not a good enough response to the servicemen and women who are returning home?
1: It's a great question. I think the coming home ritual for a long time, 10 years I'd say, in an airport was thank you for your service. And if you think about it, it's probably a reaction to Vietnam where you really, if you were a service member, you weren't thanked for your service very often. And if anything, you might have had an egg thrown at you or tomato or really not been able to go on a college campus wearing your your uniform or camis uh, because there was so much protest over the war and a sense that the soldiers or warriors were responsible for the war. We now think, rightly, I think, um, that you can separate, at least to some degree, the war from the warrior. And so we want to acknowledge that, I think, by this ritual. Thank you for your service. But it's it's thin, and a lot of service members feel resentment. Oh, you've been at the mall while I've been at war, <laughs> meaning uh, there hasn't even been, been a war tax. You haven't really felt the war. I mean, we've got to think that only half to, uh, half to 1% have served in these wars, so it's very few folks have served, and they've served for a really long time, multiple deployments, some four, five, six, seven deployments in very messy counterinsurgency wars with the mission changing. So it's a beginning of a conversation, it, when it's sincere, it is gratitude, but It doesn't go very deep and we need to find a new conversation that moves deeper so that a service member coming home really has a sense that he belongs at home again and that people are willing to ask the kind of questions or become friends with you with you if you're a service member in a way that will allow you to feel, oh, they trust me and I can really tell them what it was like being over there. So I think we need to have deeper conversations. I think the classroom for me has been an amazing place to have those conversations. And it's a privileged relationship. You get to be with someone often for four years um, if they're a freshman and they and you hit it off as a teacher or a mentor and a student, you have a very significant relationship um, in the way that education and teaching often allows. And it's a place to go to a much deeper place to start to heal. Both for the civilian and for the and for the service member, it's a two way street here.
0: I, I'm sure the interactions with the soldiers returning back from war are are crucial and, and extremely important. So, why are the everyday interactions with soldiers so crucial to their recovery uh, once returning from war?
1: Soldiers come home and they they really have been to a different place than we've been to war journalism has been able to give us access to war in a way that we've never been able before and we've had embedded soldiers and we've had really up close coverage of war in print journalism and uh and online but we still haven't been there we haven't felt the the fear we haven't felt the loss uh service member families certainly have in a deep way but those service members coming home, you know, they, they sometimes they say, you know, we, it's kind of like the uh, Simon Garfunkel song, you know, they see Kodachrome now, where they everything had been gray and, and, and brown in Iraq um, or in Afghanistan, it was, it, 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 the colors were different. The smells were different. You're 120 degrees. You were amidst rotting bodies for a long period of time. Your adrenaline levels are so different. So everything about war feels so different from being home in a civilian environment. And these interactions at home that helps service members connect with civilians again. They are civilians after all, right? They're citizen soldiers. I'm not here talking about foreign nationals who are serving, I'm talking about your own citizen soldiers and nor am I talking about contractors typically. They're they're ours that have come back but they don't feel like they belong. So anything to normalize relationships in a classroom where the person coming home may be four, ten years older than the average undergraduate, that's a gap uh, uh, to bridge. They might have been, some of my students are interrogators. It's not easy to talk about interrogation at Abu Ghraib in, in a classroom of undergraduates. Um, but if you can, as a teacher, help create an environment where those conversations can happen where you can talk about what it felt like to be a sniper a marine sniper and you can explain why your arm is tattooed um with the names of your buddies um you can start writing about it in the school newspaper you can become a Washington Post contributor as one of my students has all that is kind of normalizing the interaction so that they really can come these people can come home again and and um, feel like they belong, and feel like we belong to them as well.
0: Now you have a, a wide range of experience uh, in this particular field. So, whilst researching and speaking with the variety of veterans that you've spoken to in the past, um, what story or what conversation would you say has resonated the most with you?
1: That's a tough question because I've um, I've I've come to know very well a number of them. But I guess here's a story that I I, I find. Um, surprising and yet really um, delightful. And it it isn't harrowing either. So one of the um, folks I write about is a guy named Lalo Paniagua. Um, His real name is Eduardo Lalo Paniagua. Lalo's his nickname. And he was a Marine who went to Fallujah, Marja, very young at 18 from L.A. And he happened to, before going, fall in love with someone who became my student. Her name was Donna. And I, so I got to know the couple and I got to know Lalo through Donna, my student at Georgetown. Lalo had a really hard time coming home, suffered from both PTSD in the sense that he really um, didn't feel comfortable around people, felt very anxious and the like. And also m- m- great moral injury. He really uh, racked himself for a long time, beat himself up hard about the loss of three of his Marines. So he goes after quite a long time period of time of not really adjusting at home to uh, a Marine uh, Warrior Resilience Brigade at Walter Reed here near my home in Bethesda. But he has a dog. <laughs> it was a care dog, a therapy dog that, that he's trained and come to take care of and he's ADA, American Disability Act licensed etc. But he's not the right kind of uh, licensing for, for Walter Reed. So he can't take the dog into the barracks and he says he's not going to go without the dog he'd rather sleep in his car he slept in worse he slept in mud huts he'll he'll sleep in a hole it doesn't matter but he's not going without his dog so they they put him essentially in a off-campus site in virginia so he goes to virginia to see this site and it starts to look kind of interesting a lot of older people are on the porches and he thinks hmm, this is maybe a college dorm grandmothers are visiting etc when he gets inside, he realizes that he's been put in a retirement community with service members uh, that are retired, all officers or widows of officers. So it's a, a high-level, swanky retirement community for officers and also for State Department civilians in the Virginia suburbs. So he's ready to bolt and leave, but it turns out that this particular environment was incredibly healing for him. As he puts it, he had a lot of girlfriends who were 80 years old (laughs) and some of them he played water polo with, but almost all of them would bake brownies for him in the evening and he would reciprocate by cooking, which he loves to do amazing Mexican meals. And this turned out to be very healing uh, because he got to know people of a different generation who were nonetheless connected with war. Through their widow through their um, spouses, or because they served, if they're retired officers served in Vietnam, and um, they were sweet and gentle, and a, a a different a different kind of community than they otherwise might have. But it turned out that they were, they had time on their hands, and were very very healing. And so I often think about this story, thinking about what an unlikely set of um, circumstances that brought him there. Uh, because he wouldn't give up his dog and moreover because of the catch-22 that the the dog wasn't the right kind of care dog for Walter Reed and the the community ended up um, actually saving his life because he had a moment where he was suicidal, an evening where he was suicidal and he knew who to turn to in that community and they were there for him.
0: And that's it for this episode. Again, Nancy Sherman's book is called After War, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers, now available wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the Oxford Comment. All of our episodes can be found on the OUP blog at blog.oup.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes.